Amen. If you can tell, we are trying to get through the service this morning uh, because there's a lot, but it's an exciting day, uh, so bear with us. The scripture passage this morning comes from Psalm 11. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, or if you don't and you want to grab one in the pew in front of you, feel free to do so. But it's also printed for you in your worship folder, and it's on the screen behind me. If you're watching from home, it should be on your screen as well. It's a, it's a short psalm, just seven verses, uh, but let's read together Psalm 11. This is a psalm of David. <clears throat> in the Lord I take refuge. So how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, and they have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the, the portion of their cup. For the, love, the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. We are doing a series in the Psalms for the summer about how to live a Godward life. That is, how to resolve the emotional tension that comes with living in a fallen world through theological reflection. So, for example, from another psalm, Psalm 38, which I read this week, it says this, O Lord, all my longing is before you, the psalmist says. All of my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. In other words, the psalms model how to bring your sighs, your frustrations, your fears, your guilt, the sense of condemnation you might live under, and bring those things to God. The psalmists are not afraid to be honest with God about all of their frustrations and fears, which means that you don't grow spiritually by learning to repress your emotions and white-knuckle yourself toward the right response to whatever is happening in your life. You actually make progress by finding the freedom in the gospel to be real. To be real in the way you express yourself before the Lord, following the examples of the Psalms. You start by being honest, and then you do theology. You start with yourself but you end with God, and you bring your circumstances and your feelings and all the things going on into, up into the greater reality of God until what you believe begins to change the way you feel inside and also the way you respond to whatever's happening around you. Now, this is a skill. It's a spiritual discipline. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century preacher in London, he said, faith doesn't act automatically. It's, like, not, like, it's not like a thermostat in your house where when the temperature rises, it clicks on automatically. You have to activate it. You have to put it into practice. And that's what the Psalms model for, for us, how to activate faith in all the different facets of our life, in all the different parts of human experience, how to activate our faith to meet the challenges that we face. So let me ask a question of you this morning as we get started going through this Psalm. When was the last time that you said something like, oh, it's just hopeless? Or... I don't know why I care. It doesn't matter and make any difference anyway. Or my personal favorite, it just is what it is. 
When's the last time you could feel yourself in that place? That is, that is hopelessness. And Psalm 11 is a case study in how to combat that. And what we learn here in the psalm is that you combat the temptation to hopelessness with the theology of heaven. And those are really the two points that I put for you there in your outline. To combat the temptation of hopelessness with the theology of heaven. Now let's walk through the text just thinking about those two things. So first, there is a temptation to hopelessness. Our world can be a very demoralizing place. It is so easy to get discouraged. Life is hard. The people you don't know, but you see on the news, who make decisions that directly impact your life, politicians and cultural leaders and influencers, whatever those are, they are sinners. But the people you do know that you live with and that love you and you love, they're sinners too. And don't forget, you're a sinner and it quickly becomes too much sometimes. Now, I'm being too vague. Let me say it this way. There are truly wicked people in the world. Some you don't know and some you do that have their sights set on you. And their bow is bent, like David describes here. The arrow is in the string. They are intent to harm you and the people you love. And a lot of the time, it feels like there's very little that you can do about it. There are bad actors that are using new technologies to accelerate the polarization and, the, and that characterizes our society and to thrust us into war across the globe, to sow discord and even violence. There are political lobbies so entrenched in their rebellion against God and so profoundly mistaking the darkness for light and light for darkness that they are aggressively and often very successfully advancing evil in the name of doing good. They are destroying people in an effort to keep them safe, and it feels like the foundations are being destroyed. Sometimes. Verse 3, right? It's not a hole in the drywall. It's not a leak in the roof or a leaky sink. There's a crack in the foundation. It can feel that way, and it can be overwhelming. Now, that's a pretty bleak picture, <laughs> So what can we do? Well, as people of faith, the directive across the scriptures is very clear. But here's Hebrews 10, verse 39, where the writer of Hebrews says, We, those who put their faith in God in Christ, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and endure. What can the righteous do? Do you see how that's posed in verse 3? What can the righteous do? James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, they can go on being righteous. But the one thing they must not do, they must not flee to the mountains. Because here's the truth. The bad guys are on the run from the good guys, not the other way around. This world that is so messed up and cracked in the foundation is passing away. It's on the way out. Evil might seem to have the upper hand at the moment, but its days are numbered because Jesus is alive. And so, press forward... As we read in Colossians, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, that's not militancy or that's not political. It's not triumphalism. That's just describing quiet faithfulness, anchored in the hope of the gospel. And what is the hope of the gospel? He says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? Jesus wins. Jesus is alive. 
He's reigning in heaven. He wins. And so instead of being, you know, unstake, well, however, instead of being unshaken and unshakable in the way that that truth can make us, even in the face of such blatant evil, we are many times tempted to shrink back, to flee like a bird to the mountain, verse 1, right? To go into hiding. I mean, think about the word discourage for a minute. It means just that, to lose your courage, to lose your heart. And discouragement itself is really almost unavoidable living in a fallen world. It's, a very, it's very hard to not be so overwhelmed by your sin, by the sins of others, by how broken everything is, the collective craziness of our society. It's almost impossible not to lose your courage from time to time. I mean, remember the adage, courage is not the absence of fear, it's resisting fear by acting against it. And so the real problem is that there's a whole nother level you know, there's just a kind of a baseline of discouragement that I think is a part of living in the, the fallen world that we live in. But there's also this place where discouragement starts to devolve into hopelessness. And when that happens in hopelessness, you start to lose the will to act because you begin to think, well, what difference is it going to make anyway? Or another word for hopelessness is cynicism. And Paul Miller has said cynicism creates a numbness toward life where you just pull back, you shut your heart down, you start to go through the motions because, again, I mean, does it really matter? Look at verse 3. What can the righteous do? Can I give you another translation? It is what it is. Yuck. And this is what's threatening David at the beginning of this psalm. Most of the commentators, they placed the composure of Psalm 11 around the time when David was being hunted by King Saul. So years and years of being falsely accused and exiled and forced to live in caves out in the desert. I mean, that's enough to discourage even the greatest of men. But David's discouragement was here on the verge of becoming hopelessness. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let's ask this question. Well, how do you get there? And this is the really interesting part. Because if you notice the way the psalm is written, he is answering voices. Look there in verse 1 through 3. Again, he says, In the Lord I take refuge, for how can you say, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, and so forth. If the foul nations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so this is how it happens. When we are discouraged, we slip into echo chambers of discouragement, and then we begin to feed off of one another. And the translators are divided about where the quotations are supposed to end here, whether after verse 2 or, so David's quoting something he's heard, and it's, we're unsure is it at the end of verse 2 that the quotation's in or at the end of verse 3, and it's hard to know which are the words of David's advisors and which are the words of his own reflection in his own soul, and that's the problem with being discouraged and being around other people that are just as discouraged as you are. It's hard to know how much of the discouragement is coming from you and how much is coming from them. And when you're discouraged, the discouraging words of others go deep. And look at the word, look at the way Dave, David phrases it here. In the Lord I take refuge, verse 1, how can you say to my soul? So in other words, these things that people are saying to him, they're getting deep inside. There's power in the words we speak. The words we speak get into other people's souls. That is to say, our words are rarely just advice or opinions even though we may intend for them to be, we might think that's all they are, but for other people, they are verdicts. They become realities. They carry the power of life and death, Proverbs says. And this is why the Bible has so much to say about being careful with your words, because when you speak, you are speaking to souls. You see that? Your words 
can push someone who is discouraged, rightly maybe, off the ledge into hopelessness and despair. And so we are commanded to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, Ephesians 4, but only what is good for building up. See, that's building up, not tearing down. Our words should only be offered in the spirit of an attempt to put courage into other people. Because life is hard, and it can be really discouraging. And that discouragement can easily become hopelessness. But secondly, you have to fight the temptation to hopelessness with the theology of heaven. And that's exactly what David does here. You'll see this. Hopelessness, you see, has a voice. That's what's so interesting. Hopelessness speaks to your soul. It says it is what it is. Nothing's ever going to change. You might as well give up. What are you doing trying so hard? It doesn't matter anyway. And so what do you do when that starts to get into your soul? What do you do when the discouraging words of others join forces with your own discouragement and start talking to your soul? Well, you have to do what David does here. You have to start talking back. And this is a discipline. This is the skill to learn how to talk back to your discouragement with the truth about God. Now, look how David does this. It's a reflex. How can you say, verse 1, how can you say? Now, who's he talking to, his friends or his own heart? I mean, the answer is yes, because sometimes, again, it's hard to tell the difference. David has been listening to what his soul's been saying, echoing the words that others have said. But now he begins to talk back. How can you say, verse to flee to the mountain like a bird, for behold, the wicked bend the bow, and so forth. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And how does, how does David answer that question that lingers over his soul? Verse 3, he goes immediately to verse 4. It's immediate. What can you do? What can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? And here's how David answers that question. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven, and his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men, and then he's off. I mean, he's just, from there, he's off. And the tone completely changes. And you'll see this over and over again in the Psalms that he pens. He can sense the hopelessness creeping into his soul, and he goes on the attack. He says, no, how can you say that? You can't say that to me. Stop saying that to me. That's wrong. He talks to the other people and says, you're wrong in what you're saying. And then he turns on his own soul and says, no, you're wrong too. Here's the truth. God is in his holy temple. God's throne is in heaven, and he sees, and he is righteousness, and you can feel him just gaining confidence as the song begins to unfold. And that's how you do it. You take yourself in hand, you argue with your unbelief, you diagnose all the wrong thinking that's going on in you and around you, you rehearse the truth, you make your counterarguments until it starts to change how you feel and how you respond. Now think about Philippians 4 for just a minute which we read, I think, this past week. Paul says, don't be anxious, rejoice in the Lord. And it's intimidating, isn't it? Because that word rejoice describes an action, not a feeling. In other words, it's a command. And sometimes you rejoice because you are indeed full of joy and gratitude for all that God is and does. And sometimes you have to rejoice because you're not full of the joy and gratitude that you should feel. You're anxious instead, and you rejoice to fight the anxiety. It's a very helpful text. Paul says... If you're anxious, don't accept it. You fight. You pray. You rejoice. You think. You think your way out of anxiety and fear and hopelessness. And that's exactly what David is doing here in Psalm 11. So let's practice just a little bit before we come to the end here because we need to be finished uh, quickly. What truth...
did David use to shift himself back into the hope of the gospel? Well, if you look there in verse 4, he begins to remind himself of God's place in heaven, of his temple and his throne. You see those two images? So verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. And those two images together are what encouraged David. So let's just, for one minute, let's talk about each of them. And the temple imagery there refers to God's holiness. It means that he is the moral standard by which the whole world will be judged. That God is so morally pure. He has such moral integrity that he cannot countenance evil. He is the fountain of all truth, beauty, and goodness. There is nothing lacking in him. He is perfect in all that he is and all that he does. He doesn't grow. He doesn't change. He doesn't repent. God can't get any better or more beautiful than he already is and has been from all eternity. That's what that means. You can be improving. God cannot be improving. He's holy. The throne... That imagery refers to God's sovereignty, and we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he is king, that he controls and orders and executes all things and all events of our lives, big and small. Not in a mechanistic way, God is directly and personally involved in everything that happens in our world. It does not rain, That's not, the Bible doesn't ever say it rains, the Bible says God sends the rain. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to hit its mark. He changes times and seasons, Daniel says. He removes kings and establishes rulers. I mean, the natural phenomenon, the political events that make up the day-to-day of our life, he rules over all of them. He sits on his throne through all of them, bringing about his purposes, so much so that not even a sparrow falls to the ground and dies apart from his care. Jesus said, your days and months are numbered, and so are your hairs. On your head. The biggest news stories, the smallest details, there is no why for all of these things deeper than the throne. The throne of God in heaven. God reigns as king over all and he never loses control and nothing catches him by surprise and he cannot be defeated. That's what this means. God is holy, he is sovereign. And he's always both of those things at the same time combined. And therefore, as David goes on, he says, as he talks about the, throne, the, the temple and the throne, it leads him to say in verse uh, 5 through 7, he talks about that because God is sovereign and because he's holy. He's holy and he's sovereign, and therefore he is also righteous. Do you see that word repeated beginning in, in, in verse 5 throughout the rest of the psalm? Verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds The righteous shall see his face. And righteous means that God gets it right every time. That's what that means. That he has the moral character and integrity and also the power and the authority to get it right every time. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. God, what's happening in the world right now? God is getting it right. What was yesterday about? God is getting yesterday right. What's tomorrow going to be about? God's going to get tomorrow right too. Isn't that great? He's getting it right every time. That's what's ordering and determining the world, not the whims of a madman, not the designs of evil. Everything that happens down to the smallest detail is by God's directive, and he gets it right every time. Now, if that's true, then two things. One, whatever you're going through, whatever you're up against, no matter matter how scary, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how 
outmatched, no matter how bad it might seem, no matter how desperate you might feel. Here's how you comfort your heart. God has not lost control. He's not turned against you. He's getting it right. Which means it's the best possible set of circumstances for you to have given the sum total of all things. Now, I'm not trying to underestimate the pain and the grief and the fear that have to be endured. But the wonder is that even all of the heartache is included, not excluded in that promise. But the second thing is, is this also means that in the end, in the end, there will be a consolation that is so great, that is so complete, that it will swallow up any residual grief that you feel because at the end of all things, what God has done in the whole of all of our combined stories will be so perfect, so beautiful, so good, so right that it will as a reflex, elicit our total, eternal rejoicing. So what do you do when you find yourself discouraged and surrounded by discouraging people full of discouraging words and the discouragement starts to talk to your soul and you're teetering on the edge of hopelessness when you start to think, no, God is not good, I can't trust him, he's out to get me, you got to talk back. You say, no, no, the Lord is in his holy temple. He's still good, he's still perfect. The Lord is on his throne, he's still in control. It's going to be okay. That's the truth. That's reality. And it is more true, it is more real than whatever has you so discouraged. See, the solution to hopelessness is hope. And when your discouragement devolves into hopelessness, you start looking at tomorrow through the lens of today. And you often conclude that it will be just more of the same. But hope, hope is different. Hope starts with the future and works backwards. Okay, so you'd say it's not the way it's supposed to be right now. And it's not. It's not. Evil's still afoot. But we're in the middle of a story, friends. And the end will resolve into the happily ever after. Because, verse 7, the Lord is righteous. God is getting it right. And in the end, it will be evident. And if you start there, see, if you start there, and if you go all the way to the end, and then from that, you work your way backwards, then you can begin to think about whatever's happening today with the right perspective. And this is the way the rest of the psalm is structured. David makes, if you look there, an assessment of his circumstances in verse 5. He says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And that is how life is playing out right now, no matter what the details might be. God is testing the righteous. He is refining. He is improving with suffering. There is unavoidable grief and loss that you will have to walk through. But it's okay. You can get through it. I promise you can. And here's how you get yourself through it. You remind yourself one day... Though he's testing you now, one day, very soon, verse 7, you will see his face. That's how the psalm ends. Look there, verse 7, the righteous shall see his face. And there will be so much glory in that look. There will be so much beauty. There will be so much comfort that it will make all the sad things come untrue. And that tomorrow can give you courage for today. But at the same time, 
it says. Verse 5, he's testing the righteous, but the wicked, his soul hates. He is opposed to evil. You can be sure of this. He is working to untangle the entire cosmos from the fall, and it's a big job. It's why it's taking so long. It might feel like the bad guys have the upper hand, but they do not. They cannot win. The future has already been decided. Verse 5, God will rain down coals on the world. Fire and sulfur and scorching heat shall be the portion of their cup. And David, David says, oh God, let it be. And we should too. It's a vivid, vivid image of judgment. And it might be, it is for people in our culture, very hard to swallow at first, but it is part of the good news. Part of the good news is this, that God does not avert his gaze from evil. He will not let it stand. No design of evil against you will prosper. It will be overcome. And those who are doing evil towards you and have evil intentions and designs towards you, they will answer for what they've done. And the day of judgment will be a horror for some. For others, it will be a vindication. Now, that leaves just one more thing. Two things, really, but one, one thing. Let's just go with one. How can you be certain of the future? And the answer is because the future is already here. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for sins, but he is alive. And with his last breath on the cross... The old aeon where evil still had the upper hand, it came to an end. And with his first breath in the tomb, the new aeon came into being. Eternal life is now. It's already here. And we are hope-shaped creatures, which means we are not pushing as much as we're being pulled through life into our imagined future. And these are two very different versions of the future. Look there again, seeing God's faith on, the, on face on the one hand versus raining coals of fire on the other. I mean, it's, it's quite a stark contrast there. And so how can you make certain, how can you make certain the future? How can you make certain that quorum Deo, face-to-face -face with God, is your future? How can you be righteous, in other words? That's a proper question to ask. And in the Bible, and again, we don't have time to flesh all of these things out. We're going to have to let the rest of the service stand for itself in some of this. But in the Bible, ironically, the righteous, those described here as righteous, those, the righteous are those who know they're not righteous. They know that, in fact, they are wicked, that they deserve fire and sulfur and scorching wind, as God promises here, because of their sins. And they cry out to God for mercy, and they put all of their hope for the future, not in their own achievements or moral record or standing, but in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They know that they will stand before God in judgment to give account for their lives without a defense. And so in faith, they claim the righteousness of Christ for themselves because that is the offer of the gospel. Hear the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will be saved. Jesus' life of perfect obedience, his death as a sacrifice for sins, his resurrection. This is the Christian gospel. And there is an inheritance being kept in heaven for those who believe. And he will keep it for you. And he will keep you for it. And you can be certain of that future. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and you can make certain that future 
through a life of faith because over and over again, the scripture says the righteous shall live by faith. Listen to the hymn writer who said this here, sinners may draw near with all of their sin and guilt, nor death, nor danger, fear, since Jesus' blood was spilt. A door of hope is opened wide in Jesus' bleeding hands inside. The Savior has opened wide a door of hope for all who would believe. Put your faith in him, and may he fill your heart with hope, and may that counteract the discouragement, the hopelessness that's so easy to feel in this world we live in. Let's pray together, can we? So, Father, I pray for my friends, just that, that even as we continue together this morning, that you would fill us with hope that is ours in Christ. Would you, Father, indeed, reign over us, make it so, give us such constancy of soul that we might sing through our suffering, that you might get the glory in our lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. So I've been standing up here a long time and not back here, which is a little awkward for me. I don't do well uh, in those situations. So uh, thank y'all. But also not to make this about just me. It really is about uh, the gospel we heard this morning. And so uh, hear this theology of heaven as you go out into whatever circumstances you have for this week uh, in this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.